welcome to Talent Equals. Thanks for joining us. Well, can you believe it's been a year since we launched the podcast? And during that time, we've been joined by some fantastic guests, world-class entrepreneurs, CEOs, and authors. And, well, I often find myself quoting parts of those conversations because I'm cool like that. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be helpful and fun to bring together some of our favorite insights for your enjoyment? Think of it as an index of outstanding observations. And we'll keep doing this format throughout the life of the show because I think it'll be helpful not only for myself but also for you guys. So I would love to hear your feedback and any requests that you have. So let's start with the lionized and evangelized life of the entrepreneur. It is many people's dream to run their own business, whether as a CEO or as a startup founder. The image of the entrepreneur is now akin to that of a rock star, a modern-day t-shirt-wearing celebrity on the cover of a magazine. On the outside, it looks like an ideal life, lots of freedom, money, and power. And it's no doubt that there are many benefits to being a founder and entrepreneur who secures millions in funding. But there is always a price to pay in any high-stakes job. So what is the reality? Is it all great? Is there work-life balance? What's the toll on you and those around you? I've selected some clips from two fantastic people. David Soloff, three-time serial entrepreneur who has already sold one business to Snapchat and is the founder of the new insurtech OTT Risk, who already has a famous billionaire investor backing him. And Andy Rea, CEO and founder of Munich Re's Digital Partners, who has selected and helped grow some of the world's most exciting insurtechs. Many are now the who's who of the insurtech scene. So without further ado, I give you David and Andy. So Andy, I've been fascinated to hear about your journey and all the things that you've done. But maybe just tell what, what's happening next, Andy, because I know you've got some news, um, what's happening for you um, as we finish up. So yeah, what's what's coming next to you? So I stepped out of, uh, of Digital Partners um, uh, from the 1st of December, um, uh, which was you know, part of my part of my life plan um everything sort of came together at the right time in that um you know i've been running the business for four and a half years um it felt like it was time for change when you build a business um uh, like digital partners um we were you know we were part of munich Re, but we were also on the side and the business began to look very like me um and you, you know as a ceo you have to be aware of the the uh, the strength of your own voice and I, I thought the business could do with uh, someone else leading it. Um, I also passed the big 5-0 in Congratulations. September. Congratulations. Wow. Very much my, yeah. <laughs> and when I, when I started working my early, in my early 20s, um, I felt I would really like to go and do a PhD. But firstly, I didn't have any money. And secondly, I didn't really have a subject at that point. Um, uh, but at 20, looking forward to 60 just seemed impossibly far away. So I so I said, <laughs> I'll work really hard until I'm 50 um, and then go and do a PhD um, and, you know, have a different style of life. So I'm right at the beginning of that 
journey now. I, um, I'm sort of hoping to start a PhD sometime next year. Uh, I'm doing uh, then also some non-exec and some advisory work. Um, uh, so, so is this is this a form of retirement, Andy? Is this what we're saying? This is retirement at fifty. Um, it's you know, so, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think these days uh, for for people like us, I, I think retirement is is not really a a concept that 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 makes sense anymore. You know, I get I get retirement. You know, if you've spent if you spent forty years doing a um, you know a physically demanding job, then you then I think you have a right to 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 stop doing that and you know to do what you like. Um, uh, my 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 life has not been so physically demanding. That I'm, that <laughs> I'd like to do some uh, something different. Um, uh, and for me, there's a there's a big difference between um, uh, between being a, a CEO and being a, a non-exec director. And the the difference is being a CEO is all is all consuming. Um, it has to be your number one focus in. Uh, in everything, it takes precedence over, um, over you know, other interests you might have. It very often takes precedence over, over family life. You know, you know, um, uh, it it takes it takes over your weekends, and 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 that is just inevitable. Even if you're not doing something, you're thinking you're thinking about it. You there's always stuff going on. Um, whereas being a being a non-exec director allows you, I think, to to advise, to engage, to use your to use your skills, to give something back to to the industry that I've um, that sustained me, uh, and just to have a yeah a slightly different a different pace of life. And and you've made this quite quite a quite a, an exciting and brave choice at fifty to step away from this role that so many people would want. But how? How have you managed your well-being? And you can say terribly, but do you have any tools, or, or what have you done to to sort of make to try and help create some balance in your life? Um, yeah, yeah. Honestly, the answer I think would be would be terribly. <laughs> um, I'm frankly I'm skeptical of uh, of CEOs who claim they have balance. Most of the things I see from from CEOs who are um, uh, who claim who claim to have mindful techniques? It tends to involve getting up at three a.m. and doing meditation, and then going out for a run, and so on. And this is all very fine as long as you have absolutely no family life and only sleep three hours a night. Um, I, I think the reality is, as a CEO of uh, almost any size business, but certainly a reasonable size business, um, uh, you just are. You know, you're not only busy, but you also have you know, an accumulation of of stress. There is always stuff going on in your business. There is always bad news to deal with because when things are going well, you know, you don't need to know when you know you spend your day dealing with the problems. So uh, how do you how do you unwind then? How, what's your sort of your your relaxation technique? Uh, you, you retire at fifty. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, to be honest, I, I never um, I never had a great uh, relaxation technique. Um, to, I mean, you, ha- you, 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 I suppose you have to t- try and take your mind off things. You, what you don't want to do is dwell on things. But uh, I, I, I walk the dog. My wife used to say she would see me out of the window, um, and I would set off with the dog, and I and I would be, you know, talking to myself, or rather talking to the dog, um, and I would chanter all the way through the, the walk. 
and if I was and if I was still visibly chondering on the way back, she'd know she would know I'd had a bad week. Um, well, so, that's an interesting that's an interesting I, type the of the dog absorbs a lot of stress. Well, hey, that's I mean, it's, it's honestly not something that's um to be sniffed at there. I think there's, an, there's a coping mechanism there that, that being outside and walking and being in nature is um, a very important component of, of well-being, um, certainly why I live in Devon. So you've sort of taken this idea of you know, seeing the value of data, but how data in its rawest form can be you know, really meaningless, but has a lot of intrinsic value if it's structured and indexed in the right way, transfer all that into meta markets which is ultimately serving this huge beast that many don't know about performance marketing, about okay. the sort of the way that the internet is effectively funded in yeah. so many ways that gets sold to Snapchat, sort of showing you that there's a, a real strong value in, in indexing that, that data. And that led to your next idea, iterating on again, this, this kind of singular idea that you, you've talked sure. about into um, premise, right? And that's your late, okay. your. Yeah. That, you know, what's great is that, when after things have happened, you can clean up the narrative and make it sound like a very orderly <laughs> and calm, logical progression. Um, the reality is that it's bloody chaos. And, yes, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a near death experience every seven to eight minutes. <laughs> as someone as an entrepreneur here in Silicon Valley that I really respect um, said, um, you know, being a founder is it's one of the few jobs in the world that allows you to feel on top of the world in the morning and like you want to shoot yourself in the face in the afternoon. <laughs> and um, I, I really, I am, you know, sometimes the opposite is true. You actually want to do the shooting in the morning and <laughs> top of the world in the afternoon. But invariably, you're going to see peak and trough in the same day. Yes. Um, it is a, it's a, it's a dirty business. It is, it's really, um, it's, it's brutal. Um, so there needs to be a real magic to the idea. Otherwise, there's just no incentive to push through. I did. You did make a nice point earlier. I said flippantly said that you like living on the edge, but there's a, there's a definite truth to that. And then my um, that I believe that anybody who's interested in true innovation and creating, they have to embrace this this chaos. Um, but also, the, and and in that chaos comes failure because out of the iterations of failure comes success, right? So. I can see that in everything you're saying. There is this must be this becoming used to this this constant push and pull and tearing down and building up, but trying to hang on, as you said, to a central thesis, a central idea that's that you believe is beautiful and has value, and that can help you move through these troubles. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the eye of the hurricane, right? The eye, that place of calm or the center of all of the swirling chaos needs to you know it needs to you need to hold true to that um and or be ready to abandon it if it's not proving out and you know change it um you know sometimes it's hard to know whether you're being um persistent uh or reckless um sometimes it's hard to know whether you 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 truly are onto an idea and, and you're early and the world doesn't understand it or whether you're just wrong um you don't it's not like you can, you know, look at a sign that will tell you what to do. So that that's, I think that actually is the nature of the risk. You know, the nature of the risk is that you don't know, um, you don't know when you need to pull out of the nosedive. <laughs> you can't see the ground or whatever, torture your own metaphor. Um, you know, but it is, it is, um, it's thrilling. Um, and it is honest in that 
you do get to see an idea through if you're fortunate, right? You do get to attract capital and a team and customers and fill an important need. Um, and if you're really, you know, if you're one of the really few people, you're, you're actually able to make a living at it. There is a real pressure that comes along with running a business, especially when you have people relying on you for success, salary and support. And you quickly realize that you can't do everything yourself. You need to have the right kind of people on board. Because in a startup or a small business, there is this ever-present sense of risk. Interestingly, with many of the people I've spoken with, many of the founders and entrepreneurs who grow companies, their key strategy to attract the very best people is the development of a strong mission-based culture. So let's listen to some thoughts from Andrew Engler, co-founder of Kettle, the insure tech helping to predict the ravages of wildfire in the tempestuous climate environment our world finds itself today, and Richard Lefley, the pioneer of microinsurance, whose work has delivered a much-needed affordable insurance model to impoverished people in developing countries so, all over um, the world. What is it like building a team and... and- has that been harder than you expected? You know, what, have, what has gone into building the team that you've got? What are you learning about that? And what would you tell other people your experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm familiar. I mean, I've built teams up to like 40 people in, in past like roles and stuff like that. It's fundamentally different in COVID times when you can't even meet an employee and face our, our potential employee face to face. I think we'll see a shift into like kind of like, oh, would you be able to consult for a bit and then come like work because it's this great like trial period where someone can make money and, and you know, do multiple things at once and then, you know, uh, jump on full time. But it, it has been very, very different from past like hiring experiences where we have an influx of people wanting to join because it is such like a core mission driven company and and hit so many marks and, and, you know, we're lucky to have like excitement around it and, and have articles and, and Forbes and like fortune and stuff. It, it definitely, if you have a mission and vision behind it and, and people realize like, this is something that I would love to wake up every single day and, and just do, um, the hiring part becomes a lot easier. I would say, I, I take a lot of influence from like, if anyone wants a great recommendation, there's something called like the, the valve employee handbook um, that, that was put out. There's a company named valve and they own half-life and steam and, and all these incredible um, software uh, uh, developments. It's a video game, video, video game maker. Valve, valve yeah, is a video, video game, game maker, platform, and, and, right? But they yeah, actually yeah, own yeah. like a video game store now, which is incredibly yeah. profitable. But valve has this beautiful book that they created for all their employees. And, and it's, really the way we look at it, because it's very horizontal structure and the way that they're structured. And, and it's created around like giving people massive amounts of empowerment and telling them like, figure out what's wrong with the company, like jump to the point of biggest need and jump in there and, and help out. So like find your place in the company and we're here to support you, like find it. But like, it's much different than like that. We're hiring you for X role. You're only going to do X come in and like, do that position and stop like talking to this person, stop worrying about these problems. It's very much more like you have people hunting down the biggest issues and fixing them. Hmm. How have you found, Andrew, one of the perennial issues? You are recruiting in an area in reinsurance where people are very comfortable. Um, it's a well-paid industry, right? And um, actuaries, I don't know if you're recruiting for actuaries and uh, people like that, they're a risk-averse bunch. Have you found that to be still quite difficult as a, as a hiring talent or 
Has that not been an issue for you? That hasn't been an, an issue for us. And actually, I mean, look, we like to call actuaries are the original data scientists. Like there's an absolute love of what we've been doing, especially in these like incumbent companies. They have been nothing but incredibly supportive and, and great conversations because, you know, we're really just trying to bridge this gap between like the modern data science practices that that have proliferated in in capital markets and, and quant methodology and and bring it to the industry that that is the original like data science business and it, it's really like kind of a beautiful marriage between the two it always it's always weird to me when i see like startups saying like oh we're gonna come in and take over the insurance industry and like kick out the incumbents like no you're not like these are incredible companies that have built yeah. billion massive billion dollar balance sheets and have been protecting the world for decades like they know exactly what they're doing and and there's just a, a match to be made in in terms of like this kind of future iteration that happens so the companies yeah. that'll succeed are very much in partnership with them and in no way like oh we're gonna compete and eat their lunch and and you know they'll die out i think the honest answer is is that the good news is that an organization like microchip probably attracts a certain kind of person um you know because there are people that want to work in a social business um, that's having a positive impact and that you know they they get that kind of sense of, of achievement and i think we probably attract those kind of people and so we have a bias towards them i think what we're looking for increasingly um and it's kind of interesting is we're looking for people that can just that just have that kind of yes i can do it kind of mentality so we we recently did some work with our team and we, we we did that kind of you know all these kind of analysis and we were obviously trying to map out kind of who were the people in our team depending on whether they were people you know extra extroverts introverts uh, or whether they are detail oriented or they were kind of you know big thinkers and you know we're plotting them on these kind of scales and we use kind of four colors you know so we use red yellow green and blue um, and and we put people in these categories and the reason we do it this way is because you know um it cuts across different cultural boundaries and, and it helps people with different languages to understand kind of where they fit in and and it was really interesting because we've got a real spread of people but of course we're a sales-led organization so you know a lot of our senior leadership is is quite sales sales kind of led um and it's been really hard to find people that are kind of sales driven but also compassionate um and and you know have that kind of desire to actually serve all people you know rather than just Kind of hitting targets and things like that and so we tend to look for people who have a kind of can-do attitude and quite it's interesting quite a lot of the people that come into our organization end up staying with us for quite a long time and i think the reason they do that is because once we've hired someone who's got a kind of like you know kind of can-do mental attitude they quite often start off relatively junior positions and end up being country managers so end of last year we had we had our kind of country manager in Ghana who'd been with us for seven or eight years um, kind of say you know look I, I think it's time I stepped aside and went and helped my family run the family business um, and we looked internally and we realized that actually you know the most the, the person that we wanted to kind of promote into that role um, was another was another woman so the, 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 the lady who was running the country was stepping aside and the most obvious person to replace with was a local uh, woman who had joined us straight from university in a you know as a kind of claims clerk uh, and had worked her way through the organization and just was such a go-getter, you know, and, and, and we put her in the role and I said to her, look, you know, we're going to put you on probation here and, and, and give you this role. And we're in the middle of COVID lockdown. And I said to her, look, I need you to go to the regulator and get this letter, uh, you know, because we need it. Um, and um, I understand it's lockdown. I understand that the regulator is working from home and therefore it's going to be difficult. And she said, no, not, not a problem. I'll get it for you today. 
And I, and I said, look, don't overpromise, you know, because, you know, you don't know that. And she said, no, I'll get it for you. And in, that, and in an hour, she had a letter signed from the regulator. And I don't, I still to this day don't know how she did it. <laughs> I don't really, and, and, you know, I don't really mind how she did it, but she did it. When you are building a business and building a team, it's so important to have the right partnerships and management team around to support you. So selecting the early stage co-founders are really a make or break moment for a business. It's critical that you find someone who has shared values because those lead to long-term relationships. They need to have a belief in the mission and be strong enough and determined enough so they will be resilient in the face of the wins that you will surely face. But it's critical that you don't just hire a carbon copy of yourself. You need somebody who brings a different perspective to help widen your sense of risk and to see the perils that may sink the ship on which you are both sailing. So in our next clip, Nicholas Sur and Matthew Wardle of Casco share their journey of working together as co-founders. And Stephen Mendel, CEO of InsureTech bought by many, talks about promoting diversity in his management team to make them more robust and fit for the future. Honestly, that the idea of selecting your co-founder and selecting your co-founder well is incredibly important to the success of the business and, and also on the mind of a lot of people who are starting their companies. So, you know, understanding each other and understanding each other's sort of way of looking at the world, I can see as being, you know, really, really valuable. Um, so when you, when you decided to come together and sort of start working together, what were the things that you, that you focused on that you kind of helped you think it was actually going to be what was going to work right between you two of you? So, so I guess the, the, I mean, we, we kind of took it step by step, right? Uh, but I think the one thing that we did from the beginning, especially before we decided to do the jump, um, we were, and maybe I was, and, and uh, Matt just uh, agreed, I was very adamant about having a fixed number of working hours allocated to this project. I didn't care so much whether it was during the week or after the week. And I said, you know, let's build this. But what this means, everyone 10 hours per week. Um, because I was, I wanted to make sure we didn't know how long things took and we didn't know what the output would be, but it was very much about that contribution because everyone likes to build a company in a bar and then, you know, <laughs> uh, but then it's, you know, Saturday and you have a tough working week. And that actually churned out quite a few uh, people who were very interested in the project at the time, but couldn't commit. And I think it's that, it's that commitment, um, um, to the thing. And I think that is what, um, kind of, um, always persisted because we, our journey was also not a journey of a home run. You know, we had a lot of iterations. Um, I mean, if I look back at, at our journey, um, it all made sense and there was so much excitement and, you know, it's, it felt like each step was kind of getting closer to where we wanted to go and that I still mm -hmm. very much feel like that. But kind of looking from the outside in, um, you know, revenue didn't come as quickly as we thought. Business model didn't come as quickly as we thought. And understanding didn't come as quickly as we thought. So some people like, why didn't you give up? And, you know, I think it's, it's that both of us were in the same part of our life, our 30s. We, um, we, we had the freedom to do it, but also the aspiration uh, to do it. And, you know, we just kind of kept at it uh, whilst I would say probably others 
would have given up and have. Um, I, th- I think it's fair to say we also found quite quickly that our this, we kind of knew we knew we'd have complementary skill sets. I've always had a tech background and running running teams background. Nick's always had a business very business focused and insurance background. So we knew that our skill sets were complementary. Um, but we also found quite quickly that actually we worked together both on the skill sets we assumed would be complementary, but also the others. So I I gave quite a lot of influence on how we, what we should build the business and how that should work. And Nick gave a lot of influence on how we should build the products and how that should work. Um, so. We actually ended up, we found that it actually worked extremely well. And probably I would say, if anything, I would actually say better than we expected. <laughs> yep. So what was the thing that surprised you the most about working together? What would you th- what surprised you the most that was the most difficult part of working together? I would say the thing that surprised me the most, how not difficult it was and still is. Um, yeah, we- <laughs> I, I mean, and, and Matt can, it has, I'm, I'm an antagonistic person, you know. I I like to take. I I don't like things sweltering. I I like to take things heads on. Uh, I it's not that I oh I can't help it. It's just I just go into into a circular uh, thought process, and I just need to I just need to fix stuff. Um. So, and I felt I don't I don't know that that we ever in this in this journey ever had a. We disagreed wholeheartedly about stuff, but you know, no, no fallout. And and this, mind you, with the business not really working for three years. Um, so I think it was that it was it was that how how easy it it was, and 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 I think still is, and and how I would I would say how little attention this relationship requires. Yeah, I think, and I think also, I think. Both of us have a, a, a kind of quality in common, which is that even if we do have quite heated arguments about how something should have been done or something should be done, I wouldn't say argument, heated discussions, we should call them, um, about how something should be done. Both of us are willing to then take it away and then think about it. And then actually, if we realize we're wrong, absolutely do do 180 degrees on this and not kind of stick by what we think is a, uh, to prove our, there's no kind of that neither of us have a pride in making a decision um, that we that we thought originally. Mm. Um, I mean, other than the "I told you so" uh, comment, we, we do both enjoy. <laughs> yeah. And and rarely, rarely is there a uh, is there an intuitive decision making required. Rarely is there a, a situation where there isn't proper information to enable you to make the right decision. Mm. In business, anyway. Yeah, I suppose it's about then finding that that information and that data or creating the platforms yep. and the infrastructure that can help with that. And, you know, I heard back to having a co-founder yep. who's a CTO must help in many ways. Correct. Correct. And we're very different. We're very different. And that's also very important. Uh, yeah. In fact, we have a we have a leadership team that are made up of a bunch of people for whom it is very hard to find what makes us tick together. But we really do. Mm. Different backgrounds, different experience sets. Uh, different histories in in, in business and in, in academic life, and and that's created a a, a leadership team that has a very uh, diverse outlook. And uh, was that a deliberate choice? Absolutely. And how do you do that? So how do you do that? You do that for looking for areas where you don't have different thinking. So I'll give you a, a very good example. Uh, about two and a half years ago, we realized we needed a CFO. We'd never had a CFO as a business before, but we were growing and needed to create a leadership team position for a chief financial officer. 
The business at the time was run by four guys. And that was just because they had been the right people at the time. And it was very clear to me that other than the leadership team, we were a business that was 50-50 male-female. And that had been that had been the right answer. And But at the leadership team, that was not the case. And, and so I set out to find a female CFO who had insurance experience, hen's teeth. <laughs> um, yes. And I met 32 people before I found the right person mm. and, and did some very strange things to try and find the right person, including putting myself in some very unusual situations to enable me to come into contact with people who were different from me. To enable me, you got to you got to you got to tell us about those strange things, Stephen. <laughs> okay, please. I will yeah. give you one, uh, <laughs> but I think it, it's it's the most public one. So it's uh, International Women's Day. I think it's March the eighth, and it was two thousand and eighteen. Um, and I went to a talk given by Nikki Morgan, who was the chair of the Treasury Select Committee at the time, at the Law Society. Um, focused on women in leadership a thousand people in the room 997 of them were, were female and uh, i got to the question time um i put my hand up and i was asked uh, i was invited to ask a question almost certainly because i was one of the only men in the room um <laughs> and and i put my hand i stood up and in front of everybody i said it's not really a question directly to Nikki Morgan. It's more a question to everybody else in this room. But I'm the chief exec of an insurance startup and I'm looking for a female CFO. And if anybody in the room would be interested in applying for the role or know somebody who'd be interested in applying for the role, please come and see me. I'll be standing at the back of the room afterwards. And my question to Nikki is, how should I find the right person for this role? And sat down. And... So I stood at the back of the room feeling very, very, very sad because I was completely <laughs> ignored until Nikki Morgan, until Nikki Morgan herself walked up to me. Um, and she said to me, that was one of the gutsiest things I've ever seen anybody do. Please, please let me know as and when you find the right person. And, and she uh, introduced me to a recruitment firm who do female recruitment. As it happens, I already knew them and, and said that she was very personally uh, interested in finding out. Nothing to do with that event, but uh, a couple of months later, I found the right person, uh, Louisa Burrill, who I'm delighted joined us as our CFO and has been phenomenal for us. Um, and yeah. that night that Louisa accepted the job, uh, I, I emailed Nikki Morgan to tell her that we'd found the right person. And within half an hour, she replied and said, I'm delighted. I was absolutely sure you would find the right person. Good luck to you. Mm. And it was very nice. And, mm. and, and that is I mean, really coming back to... So the question, it's really about doing diverse things to find diverse thinking. And it's pay, it paid off enormously for us and hopefully for Louisa too. Yeah. Life and work are about looking back on the experiences that we've had and deciding if we could do something different, if we could have acted differently. That's where real growth comes. And so I find it really inspiring when I speak to leaders who recognize that they have a responsibility to nurture the next generation of leaders through sharing their own experiences and mistakes. So here's Marcus Schmalbeck, CEO of RiskX, sharing his advice for the next generation of insurance leaders. And Richard Leffley again, speaking about learning from your mistakes 
in order to grow and be better. Can I ask you then, what would be your advice then for the next generation of insurance builders who are coming in as CEOs and may have a lack of experience? What would be your advice to yeah, the next generation of insurance builders? Yeah, interesting. I would listen. I, I think listen is always a good advice. Listen to the people who are already in the market and then think of um, who will be your, who is on the one hand your client and on the other hand, um, yeah, with whom you are interested in working together. And um, of course, you have to listen and you have to be um, polite on the other hand as well. And if you say, yeah, I'm now coming with my, let's say it again, Wharton MBA and my, I'm 25 years old and I'm wearing some red shoes and have my Apple laptop and now I'm disrupting the world. That's okay. Yeah. Alexander the Great wasn't older than you, but... Um, <laughs> maybe the 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 better the better approach would be getting in touch with the traditional market and first of all understand what you want to disrupt or find a better solution for um yeah because then it's much easier um yeah to building up great relationships with the existing market because just you say, I'm building up a, a startup and I have a better solution and here I am, the traditional um, market will not say, okay, you're right, this product is much better than our, uh, so um, we'll go now and uh, stage is yours. Of course not. Yeah, I've heard this said before that partnerships are incredibly important in the future of insurance and I suppose that's we talk a lot about disruption and I wonder if that sometimes is conflated with sort of going it alone, <laughs> but <laughs> disruption can be done in partnership. And I was, I did hear Praveena Ladva say on her media day from Swiss Re about the importance of Swiss Re and there's the whole digital strategy will be about partnerships. It will be about working with organizations that can help them do new things in new ways, but, Ultimately, they need, we need to be cooperating with the, the sort of the foundations of an industry. Otherwise, smaller firms aren't really going to get going, right? It's a really difficult thing to do. So, yeah, partnerships, that's really at the core of your business as well, right, Marcus? So, it's yeah. successful. <laughs> Yo, absolutely. Um, um, uh, risk exchange um, hopefully will become... Um, an ecosystem at the end of the day or should be but there's even the even um the idea is great you need on the one hand the policy holders and you need on the other hand the risk takers who are interested in working with us so um of course partnerships is um, i would say the most important thing uh, for us and getting an understanding um for both sides of the market uh of course, for the policyholders, but also um, an understanding of the risk takers and their appetite and to see why they are perhaps not interested in working with us or why they are interested in working with us. Because then um, perhaps it's a homogeneous market. If, the, if A says yes, maybe the reason why they say yes make absolutely sense for B as well. Mm. And mm. so, as I said, listening to the current market experts and 
the, the let's call them the real CEOs in the market definitely helps. If you mm-hmm. have the opportunity of a chat with John Neal from Lloyd's um, for five minutes, as we had uh, during the fusion days, it's uh, it's really interesting what he's what he's telling you. And uh, these are the powerful guys within the industry. So listen and look how you can, I will not say a system or how you can develop something that uh, which make them or make you interesting so that they um, have a need for working with you together. But I think what's important is, and it, you know, it's not all about failure. I mean, it's, it is about learning from those mistakes, learning from, you know, and, and actually for me, there's, an, there's a great deal of joy in learning from, from those mistakes and having a bit of a laugh about them, um, you know, and th- thinking, you know, why did we do that? I mean, I remember, I remember one of the first products we ever launched in, in Zambia um, was a life insurance and it was, it was called Entula and it was for one person and, and five family members. And we thought this was a fantastic product. Um, because, uh, you know, it was the first product where it covered six, you know, it covered these six people and, 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 you know, African families were quite big. Um, and what we hadn't realized was that, you know, in the weeks and months before we launched the product, there'd been a huge number of stories in the, in the local newspaper about kind of black magic. And of course, six is this number, which is kind of linked to kind of black magic. And so when we launched our product and it was to do with death, everyone assumed that we were, we were witches. And so we had, a, we had a riot and people, you know, literally kind of like were, we had to get kind of you know, evacuated from this, from this small town because people wanted to kill us. So, you know, there's kind of like these kind of hilarious kind of, how did we get it so wrong? You know, we, we were here to help people and they wanted to kill us. I mean, you know, so we've made so many mistakes along the way. It's been, uh, and some of them are, are genuinely kind of weird and wonderful. One thing that has stood out clearly to me throughout the course of the conversations over the last year is that in this early stage environment there really is an importance that your leader has passion entrepreneurs and executives that are driven by a purpose and a mission and then can convey that with passion and enthusiasm really do make incredible contribution to the organizations that they support they are able to generate much needed excitement for their product they're able then to attract like-minded talent who are going to be investing their time and brain power in missions that at times will not be entirely sure to survive and so in this next clip i found the ceo and founder of the multi-billion valued insuretech we fox julian tyker he speaks about his unusual journey into insurance and finding his purpose in what he does. And we finish off with the ever-inspiring and charismatic David Katz, founder of Plastic Bank, the company creating a new form of monetary value to help tackle the world's plastic crisis. Most people I speak to who are in insurance, I hear a very similar thing, which is like, I never dreamed of being in insurance. I never you know, thought about when I was back in school, um, you know, thinking that's, I want to, is it, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a firefighter or I want to be an insurance man or woman. And, um, I know that's, that's true, but there is something enticing about the industry. Nonetheless, the people who are in it tend to stay in it for a long time and tend to find something. So I, I sort of wonder what, what has kept you in insurance then? Why are you excited to be in insurance now then? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I obviously had to, 
find purpose in what I do um, because I, I wouldn't be able to just do something. And, and I was thrown into it. And, you know, I remember these family parties, you know, uh, my dad being an insurance broker and my uncle uh, being a pilot, right? Mm. And everyone, when growing up, was like surrounding my uncle. And he was telling all of these passionate stories about flying, right? And my dad was sitting in the corner all by himself. Everybody's scared that uh, he would sell them something, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the image of the insurance broker is screwed up. Um, and I made it, you know, my passion to um, create a or help create a new image for the insurance advisor and help create a new image for the entire industry. Um, and I really became passionate um, about that plus the entire purpose um, of enabling people to be safe. So uh, with technology, what we can actually do um, is return insurance um, to its core, um, which is, you know, about safety and community, helping each other out. Um, that entire purpose um, over the last century has been diluted. Why? Uh, because money often dilutes purpose, right? Um, and there was so much money in the, in the game. Um, and um, insurance CEOs, you know, had to return profits, um, and um, uh, essentially managed a money printing machine um, mm. where essentially for every you know dollar they got into the system, they would then reinvest that dollar uh, into the capital markets, make more money uh, and pay out less than what was paid in. So essentially it's just a money making machine and all you had to do as a CEO is just figure out how to get more money uh, into the cycle. Um, and the best way for such an abstract product as insurance is to get Salesforce um, and ask them, what do you need to, you know, sell as much insurance as possible to get as much money into my money making machine, right? Um, and uh, they would tell you, make it as confusing as possible, you know, uh, make it as complicated as possible um, so that I can essentially sell overpriced insurance products, that I can sell double coverage um, you know, that way I can bring you the most money, right? Um, and that system worked for like 100 years, right? Um, and um, uh, that purpose of uh, now creating something truly customer-centric um, uh, and helping insurance advisors with technology to consult their customers significantly better with the right product, plus thinking even one step further of reinventing the entire insurance product from uh, reactive protection, so financial protection uh, from uncertain events. So um, the insurance experience is a really boring and terrible one, right? So uh, you answer a couple of questions. Mm. You get a price. You buy a policy. You forget what's the fine print, obviously, because it's so complicated. Something bad happens in your life. Um, and in the best case, the insurance company pays back money, right? So the entire experience is pretty shit. Um, and with data um, from our devices, uh, we're going to be able um, to turn insurance into um, proactive protection from likely risks, right? So we're going to be able to tell you 
about your risk profile right now and give you um, information about how to increase your risk awareness to decrease your risk, live a safer, longer and healthier life, right? Um, and it's actually in the interest of the insurance company. It's in the interest of the insurance advisor. It's in the interest of the insurance customer. As a customer, I'm going to have a safer life. As an insurance company, I'm going to have a lower loss ratio, right? As an insurance advisor, you know, I can essentially um, do the right thing um, and get rid of that image um, that has been created um, through insurance being this money-making uh, machine without a soul. You know, what I, you know, what I'm in awareness of is that there, I'm confident that there have been countless amazing ideas, countless, like just world-changing, paradigm-shifting, humanity-shifting, society-shifting ideas that died because the person who had the idea was afraid. Mm. They thought it was beyond them. The ego mind showed up and said, you can't do that. Who are you? And the person believed that. I, I think I, I resonate with that. I think, I think for most entrepreneurs, actually, talked about being an entrepreneur, and I wonder actually if that sort of crucible of, you know, fear and, you know, just giving it a go, but experiencing failure and getting back up again is sort of the, the crucible of being an entrepreneur. It's just that there's no failure. There's only learning and becoming. That's all of that too, part of entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, well, I suppose maybe it's a, I mean, I think there's a kind of a, a narrative I hear you talking about there. It's like changing the story. And, you know, I, I think in, in all experience in life. Um, I, would, I would argue that it's not about changing the story. It's choosing the story. Okay. It's not about to, to change the story. is to say that I accept some other story to begin with and then I change it. That's not the case. It's just that the way I view life, I view life as being a gift. Yeah. I view life as being a, a process of learning. I view life as being abundant. I view life as being infinite. That's the way that I just show up in the world. Mm. There is no choice. Well, I mean, there is choice, but just in the context here, it's not like I had to choose differently. I had to give myself the capacity to say, oh, no, no, you know, that's super bad and hurtful and it's horrible and it's stuff. And then I'm going to choose something. No, just, oh, it's, that's as it is. There's more power in that. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I suppose I would counter that I think for a lot of people who may be set in a narrative, who, have, who are experiencing the world in a certain way. Yeah, totally. um, and, and and I I think that's the point of you know only from my own experience of working with, um, you know my own development and many adults have to change their development because and they do that through changing a narrative. Yeah, I agree. Yes, you have a moment to then to say, wait a second, that was a narrative I chose. Oh, hold on a second, let me choose something different. Yeah, you know, I 100 agree. I just mm. I knew that the end in mind there is that at some point as you begin to practice that, you recognize that the first narrative was also a choice. Mm chose that narrative it didn't come with a narrative mm. you just chose it to be a way and then what happens over the course of time is that your choice changes at the outset yeah i i, I remember interviewing a few i've interviewed a few entrepreneurs on the show and i think i mean one with uh, david soloff where he talked about you know being an entrepreneur you know it's there's nothing like it you know in in the morning you can be on the top of the world but in the afternoon, you can feel like you want to shoot yourself in the face. Um, and it's, and it's like, <laughs> and I, I, mean, I, I could really understand it. You know, half the time I think I'm flying high and then, you know, a client pulls the rug out from underneath you and you're like, damn, where did that, all that joy go? But that, that is an allegory for life in that story. That's an allegory for, 
all of the experiences we have. And I'm, I'm very, I, I did really like resonate with this kind of the hearing you talk about other things, because I'm thinking to myself, you know, plastic, what a, what a, like a horrendous thing. Right. But then I think of all the good it does as well, you know, how, how it's become a, you know, a, a sort of a hermetically sealing product, which has allowed for transportation of, you know, kind of medical goods and, you know, it's lightweight and it's and space flight yeah. and all kinds of stuff. Please, the plastic is amazing. Exactly, right? Isn't it interesting how like I know I've got it, I mean it's it's around me always. It's my headphones, it's in everything we're using, but at the same time, it's in the water and it's killing us. And it's like No, it's not the plastic. Come on, it's it's the way we view it, it's the way we disregard it. Mm. You know, I'll ask the question again, if every piece of packaging or every piece of material you saw was five dollars, how many would you see? In the environment, how do you see in the water? No, no, none. Yeah, it's zero to do with plastic. It's not that plastic degrades us and our carelessness and our our, our lack of value over people and thing and life. Mm. And really, I mean, people know that it's degrading to the environment. They know that it's killing, you know, the gift of marine life, and yet they still discard it. It's us, man. It's got zero to do with the materials. It does anywhere else in the world too. It's just so easy for people to want to blame someone else. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Talent Equals. It's been a real pleasure revisiting some of our previous interviews. I think we might do this again at some point. I would be interested to hear what you think. As always, please do share any topics that you'd like to hear about. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, on YouTube, or leave a note on Apple Podcast Reviews with your feedback. Thank you for listening to the Talent Equals podcast please do give us a review on your favorite podcast player. It really helps us with reach. And until then, have a wonderful morning, day or night, wherever you are in the world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com, so you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.